Well, tonight we are going to start our new series that I'm calling God in the Midst of Suffering. And I think one of the hardest parts of a trial and one of the hardest parts when it comes to suffering is is wondering where God is in that moment. You, You truly can feel alone. It seems like God is not close. It can seem like God does not care. And so trying to spend some time then looking at how to see God in the midst of our suffering. And as I mentioned this morning, our source text is going to be from the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis for the next few weeks. And it's going to be Genesis 37 that we're going to be looking at tonight. Genesis 37 is what introduces us to this young man who is 17 years old at this time. His name is Joseph. And Joseph is certainly an amazing uh, picture in his story that takes up a significant portion of Genesis. You realize that you have from chapter 37 all the way to the end of the book, he is uh, by far, one of the greatest portions of the, the the account that's given is toward his life. And what we're going to look at then is is how he dealt with the difficulties that he encounters right out of the gate. You don't get much warm up about Joseph. We're just immediately told in, in verse 2 that Joseph is this young man. He is 17 years old. And he's out there tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a a bad report about them. So here you have a picture that Joseph is out there in the fields. He's with all of his other brothers except Benjamin. The text specifies that it's the, the other mothers of, of, of the wives of Jacob and their sons. They're the ones that are out there, not Benjamin, because Joseph and Benjamin were born of Rachel. And that seems to be a special relationship that, that, that Joseph then cherishes. And so here there are all these sons. They're out there in the field. And Joseph goes and brings a bad report to his father about what they're doing. Some people will read that and and criticize Joseph. Joseph's being a tattletale. Joseph's being a slanderer. Uh, He should have just kept to himself and not said anything. There's sometimes some things about that. But I, I don't think that's an accurate way to look at him. So much of the life of Joseph is portrayed in quite a positive, righteous light that is not very fitting for the very first sentence to go ahead and put a dark shadow on Joseph and go, well, he's doing wrong right here. And I don't think that would be the way to to look at this. Rather, the brothers are doing wrong. That would be a very accurate way to look at the things that are going on as this scene is being cast for us. Well, uh, you have Joseph doing that, but here's really the essence of the problem is in verse 3. We're told in verse 3 that Israel, now remember Jacob is Israel, his name was changed by God after wrestling an angel and all of the promises were confirmed to him. And so we're talking about Jacob. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. So that always goes well. When you willfully choose to love one of your children 
above and beyond all of the other children. Can't see why there's going to be any problems coming along the way here. And yet that's exactly what Jacob does. And if it weren't bad enough that it's clearly evident that he loves his son more than the others, he goes ahead and shows it in a very radical way. In verse 3, you're told that he made him this ornate robe for him. This Hebrew word here is uncertain. It could be a robe of many colors. It could be a very intricate, ornate robe. It could be a long-sleeved robe. Some of your translations may be reflecting that. But whatever it is, this robe sets him apart from all of the other sons. That becomes very evident that going around wearing this robe in your family is not only saying, I love him more, but it's not something you'd go out there and work in. You're getting the picture that the boys do all the hard work and Joseph kind of stands around in his ornate robe and anytime they do something wrong, he goes and tells dad about how they're misbehaving out there. So they really love him. They really think he's great because of the love that the father has. And you can imagine what that would look like if you have siblings and here's, you know, Christmas morning or birthdays and, you know, everybody opens a, you know, a $10 white t-shirt and then the other kid opens up this really glamorous ornate coat and there's names embroidered on it, you know, and it's hundreds of dollars. Like, well, we all know where we stand. Okay. We, we see the differential that's, that's, that's going on here. That's what's being portrayed here. And verse four says, when his brother saw that their father loved him more, Then any of them, they hated him and could not speak even a peaceable word to him. I want you to just get a sense of that and a visual of that. You can only imagine what the dinner table looked like with the family there when the text tells us that none of the brothers could even say a nice thing to him. You know, That's how serious and deep the hatred is. They can't even talk about the weather. They can't even talk about the sheep. They can't can't even do that. That's the intensity of the hatred that goes on. I mean, you can imagine, you might have your differences with family members, but you can at least talk about football or the weather or shopping, or you've got probably something you can run to. And here the text says they can't talk to him at all. Any word that comes out of their mouth to Joseph is not kind or peaceable at all. And so I just want you to feel the weight of the family problems that exist within Jacob's family at this moment with his sons as they're all together. And then you have something that does not make things any better. Verse five, Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. And he said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. So if this isn't enough, I want you to think about now God starts sending Joseph dreams. Now, this is an important thing to note that this is God doing this. And people in that day and time understood that God would often be able to speak to them uh, in dreams and in, in visions. For example, you get later on when we move through Joseph's 
life, we're going to read about a butler and a baker and they're having dreams and they understand that these are sent from God. Same thing with Pharaoh. In fact, so many times in the scriptures in the Old Testament, you're going to read about somebody has a dream and they never go, wow, that was weird. I must have eaten something strange last night or I had a bad night. They, they never do that. It is always this is from God or if they're not a believer in Yahweh God, then from the gods. It is always considered something divine. Now, it's important for us to make a note why I have Hebrews 1 on the screen is that Hebrews 1, 1 reminds us that long ago, that is the way God did speak to people, but no longer. In these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. So we are not to follow the model here of Genesis 37 and go, well, clearly God is talking to me about these strange, weird dreams that I had last night. God stopped doing that. But this is, especially in the book of Genesis, and especially in the days of the patriarchs, visions and dreams were the way God spoke. And I want you to notice that's clearly what even the brothers understand. Joseph has a dream and notice their response. They aren't just like, well, that's really weird that you had a dream. Verse five is they hate him. Now they hate him all the more for having a dream. And they clearly understand the meaning of the dream in verse eight. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And so then notice it says, and they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. It's like your dream says you're going to be greater than us. Your dream says you're going to have authority over us. Your dream says we're all going to bow down to you because of your higher position. And they're like, no, <laughs> they already hate him. They already can't stand him. And now this is only pouring more gasoline on the hatred fire that they have that this has happened. Well, if that were not enough, God gives them another one in verse nine. And then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were all bowing down to me. <laughs> And when he told his father, as well as his brothers, notice this, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream that you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come down, come and bow down to the ground before you? Even Jacob is dismissive and is rebuking him, which is certainly interesting because Jacob's had some dreams sent to him by God in his life. And yet when Joseph receives this dream, Jacob goes, there's no way that we're all bowing down to you and rebukes him for it and tells him he's wrong. How can you possibly believe that? But I do want you to notice one little simple thing that's told to us at the end there in verse 11. His brothers were jealous of him. Well, we're not surprised by that. Almost every sentence has said that his brothers hate him and can't stand him and can't even speak a peaceable word to him. But Jacob, here his father, kept the matter in mind. He rebukes Joseph, but goes, I'm going to hold on to that. Because obviously it's from God. That, that's what we understand. These dreams are from God. This must mean something. They don't believe it. But Jacob is going to hold on to that. The brothers are jealous. Why are they jealous? Because 
Joseph's going to be elevated somehow. Somehow we're all going to be lesser and we're all going to be bowing down and you're going to be elevated to some extent. And so they are angry. They hate him. They're incensed by this and they are jealous of him as well. That moves us into what verse 12 would appear to be just a normal day in the life of the Jacob household. You notice in verse 12, the brothers had gone to, had gone to graze their father's flocks Near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, and I'm going to send you to them. Please visualize the picture. Who's doing all the work? The brothers are in the field. Where's Joseph? At home with dad. And dad goes, hey, why don't you go out there and see how you do, how they're all doing, just like you always do. You know, you can imagine Joseph, 17 years old, all of the other brothers are older than him who are out there in the field. And he's wearing his ornate long sleeve robe coming on out there to go see how they're doing. And so there he sends them out and he says very well in verse 13. And so he goes to try to find him. And so as he goes looking for his brothers, he has some difficulty. He goes to a valley there and they can't find him. He asks a man in verse 15, where in the world you might have seen my brothers? I can't find them. Did you see some men that had some sheep and they're out there grazing? Verse 17 is told that they had gone on to Dothan. And so Joseph goes seeking his brothers end of verse 17 near Dothan. But I want you to notice what's happening now. Verse 18. <clears throat> but they saw him, it's the brothers, but they saw him in the distance. And before he reached them, he, they plotted to kill him. And listen to the reasoning. Verse 19. Here comes that dreamer. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these pits and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Now notice the reasoning. Then we will see what comes of his dreams. You notice it's not just simply, oh, dad loves him more. Okay, they, were, they hated that. They were not happy about that. But notice the dreams are what sends it over the top. Let's get that dreamer. And we're going to kill him. And then we'll show that these dreams by no means are going to happen. Now, I want you to get a sense of what they're doing. They're not only rejecting these dreams, but they are actively trying to keep them from being fulfilled. Now, please underscore the background. The dream is a revelation from God. And they're saying, we reject that. We're not on board. He's not going to rule over us. And we're going to show how he's not going to rule over us by killing him. And that'll prove that these dreams are all for nothing. And it is amazing to just note that they are just absolutely consumed by hatred and anger. To be able to say the words that you see here in verse 18, that they are plotting to kill him let's kill him and throw him in the pit and just say that a, a wild animal devoured him and then we'll show them that he that he thinks he's somebody we'll show that there's no way that that could possibly be the case that he would be elevated or have authority over us in the slightest and that truly sets the tone of what you're noticing here now 
I want you to notice that's the plan. There's a nice little side point that happens here that is fascinating. And it comes back into play later in Joseph's life. But over on the side, this little event happens in verse 21. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. This is interesting. So you have all of these brothers hating. And he hears them all going, we're going to kill him. As soon as he gets here, we're killing him. We're throwing his body in a pit. And that's the end of him. And then we'll see about those dreams. Reuben goes, verse 21, let's not take his life. Don't shed any blood. Throw him in this pit here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Now notice this little parenthesis. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and to restore him to his father. This is an interesting side thing that Reuben seems to think he's got a little bit of a rescue plan. All right, don't kill him. Go and throw him in the pit. Make him miserable for a while. And what Reuben thinks is, I think that his brothers are going to just leave him in the pit and walk off. And then Reuben will come back around and he'll pull him out of the pit. You can imagine going home to dad, big rescuer right here. Look how I saved your son. And why would that be important? Remember, Reuben is in a lot of trouble with dad. He slept with his concubine. And that is why when you get out to chapter 49 and Jacob is pronouncing the blessings and it doesn't, wasn't much of a blessing on Reuben because of his sin that he committed. And so this might be a way that Reuben goes, I, I can fix this. I can get things a little bit better. I'll rescue favorite boy here and I'll go bringing him back to father and I'll restore him. And that's going to look good for me. And that seems to be what's the motivation under here of wanting to rescue him and take him back to his father. He's going to be the rescuer. In this. So that's the plan. Verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, this ornate robe that he was wearing. And they took him and threw him in the pit. And the pit was empty and there was no water in it. And please just notice the beginning of verse 25. And they sat down to eat their meal. <laughs> All right, let's kill him. Okay, no, we won't kill him. We'll just make him miserable. We're going to throw him into the pit. So they throw him in the pit and they sit down and have a meal. Just again, I want to color the callousness, the anger the hatred that these brothers have. You can imagine there's Joseph yelling in the pit for his brothers to come rescue him and they're not listening and they don't care and they're over there having a sandwich while he's over there yelling about all this. This is the callousness and the hate that's in this family. But verse 25, we're told while they're eating this meal, they look up and they see a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead and their camels were loaded with spices and balm and myrrh and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. It just so happens that here is a band of traders who are going through the land. They're exchanging, bartering, buying and selling goods as they go and they're doing that on the way to Egypt. Light bulb moment, verse 26. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. Now, I don't make sure we don't read this too kindly because you would expect if this was truly from the heart of verse 27 and they say, 
Let's not lay a hand on him. After all, he is our brother. He is our own flesh and blood. The next sentence should be, let's pull him out of the pit and take him home. I think he's probably suffered enough. We've taught him a lesson that will show him throwing him in a hole for a while. That's not what they do. It's, well, he is, he is our own brother. And the idea is we're going to let somebody else kill him. Let's sell him off to these Ishmaelites and they'll deal with him. And remember later on that they don't want to have any responsibility of this. You're going to get to chapter 42. The brothers are going to say that Joseph's dead. Well, why do they think he's dead? Why don't they say, yeah, that other brother, he just got sold. Well, because they don't think Joseph's going to survive this. They don't think, oh, this is going to go well. He's going to live happily ever after being sold into the hands of Ishmaelites. It's obviously going to go badly for him. And so this is what they mean by the idea of why should we have to kill him and cover up his blood? Verse 26, somebody else can do it. He is our flesh and blood. I mean, hey, you know, I don't, we shouldn't be the ones that do this. We can pass it off to somebody else. So let's sell him and he can be somebody else's problem and he won't make it through that and don't survive that. So that's exactly what they do. All the brothers agree, verse, verse 27. So verse 28, when the Midianite merchants came by his, by his brothers, pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Now, it makes you wonder, I thought Reuben was gonna save the day, right? And what, what, what happened to Reuben? There was this great plan. Verse 29, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes and he went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? I want you to think about first Reuben's gone somewhere. Maybe he's chasing some sheep somewhere. You know, it's scattered off. But here Reuben finally comes back and he's ready to go save the boy, walks up to the pit and there's nobody in there. So now he goes to the brothers. What did you do? <laughs> you know, what, what have you done now? And so they tell him everything that, that has happened. And so here's the big plan. Verse 31, they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in blood. And they took the ornate robe back to their father. And notice what they said. If this is not the essence of the full callousness, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. Wow. You can just imagine the bloody piece of robe here. Was this your son's? They don't care. And one of the things that I don't have time to, to, to really get into, but sometimes you'll notice if you looked at your ahead in your in your Bibles in chapter 38, it has this whole thing about Judah. People are like, why do we have this whole story of Judah here in chapter 38 that's right in the middle of this Joseph account? This is Judah's idea in verse 26 of chapter 37. It is Judah who says, we can make money off him. We'll just sell him. His blood won't be on our hands. Somebody else will deal with him. Somebody else will take him out. And it, will, and it won't be our problem. And the coloring of these first two chapters is to say, you don't understand how wicked these brothers are. Chapter 38 is all about Judah and prostitutes. That's how great these, these kids are at this point. By the way, not kids. If Joseph's 17, 10 brothers are older than him. Even if you're talking about having a child a year, we have boys that are up in their 30s or older at this point. So, you know, these, these aren't like 16-year-olds. 
These are full-grown adults behaving this way, doing this to Joseph. And the, chapter 38 is just the linchpin of describing how awful these brothers are. And here's the big question as we start moving into the idea of what this whole scene is about. Is I want you to just think about where's God in all this? I mean, just imagine all of this unfolding in Joseph's life here. And where is God in all of this? And in fact, I'd like to push it a little bit harder and note with you that I believe it is fair to say that God contributed to the problem by giving Joseph the dreams. Things were already not good. They already hated him because Jacob loved him more than other than the other boys and showed it by giving him this ornate robe that he's going around wearing. But if that were not enough, the jealousy hits the pinnacle. The intensity of the hatred hits its boiling point because of the dreams. It's because of the dreams that they want to kill him. It's because of the dreams that they say, let's kill the dreamer. Let's see if his dreams come come to fruition if we kill him. It's these dreams that have pushed these things over the top. When Joseph says that you are going to bow down before me, it is God's revelation that brings this to its critical, sinful, and awful end. And so we have to ask ourselves, where is God in this? You know, here we think about if God is giving Joseph dreams about what the future holds. If I'm Joseph and I'm sitting in the pit or I'm in the caravan on my way to Egypt at this point after my brothers sold me, I would have liked a dream that said, don't trust my brothers. I would like a dream that said, when dad says to go check on him, don't do it. It's going to be a trap. It's going to be a danger. They're going to try to kill you. Give me a dream that says, don't go to Dothan. That's going to be your downfall. Where's God in this? You're giving him dreams about the future, but what about right now? Look at what he's about to go through. I think it's important to ask these questions. And further, I want you to see that in the midst of all of this, Joseph has a completely fractured family. This family is a disaster. This family is a mess. Can't even say a peaceable word to Joseph. The hatred's that much. There is so much anger, so much venom in the family that they can't even possibly say a kind thing, that they can sit there on the side and plot his death, how to kill him while eating lunch. Quite a family. Unbelievable family. And what I want us to think about is that God's going to be at work in this. Amazingly, in this catastrophe of a family situation, God's going to work through this fractured family. And I think this is important for us to think about is that God is actually using the wickedness of the brothers to set in motion their salvation. Isn't that crazy? God is in the midst of using this horrifying wickedness that the brothers are just spilling out of themselves 
to set the table to bring about their salvation. It's a stunning thought how often God uses wickedness to accomplish his purposes. That you can experience evil for trying to do what is good, for in horrible circumstances for trying to do what is right. And that doesn't mean that God is not at work. We would probably put ourselves in the shoes of Joseph in the moment that this is going on and say, well, why didn't God protect me from my brothers? Why didn't God stop me from going to Dothan? Why do I have to go through all this? What is going on? And these are two things that we're going to see not only in Joseph, but truly can be replicated throughout the history of scriptures about how God works. Number one, God's going to need to transform Joseph. We're going to see that in a few chapters. It'll be a, a bit till we get there. But we shouldn't be surprised by that. How often do the scriptures basically tell us every human being needs to be refined and transformed by God? Everyone. There's not a single human being among us that are going to go, no, no, I, I don't need any of God's transforming hand. I don't need any trials. I don't need any suffering. I would like to sign the dotted line that says I don't, but I know that that's exactly what we need. And God works through trials and suffering to change us and mold us and transform us. And Joseph's no different. That he clearly is going to need God to work in his life. And this is going to be one of the ways to cause that transformation. And I'm excited in the future lessons to show you this transformation arc that God accomplishes in Joseph. But at this moment, there's even a bigger arc beyond that, which is God has a bigger plan right here. And that had to be impossible to see at this moment. I mean, think about how impossible this seems. God gives Joseph these dreams about how he will rule over his brothers and his family. So how do my brothers trying to kill me fit in the plan? And how does them selling me into slavery fit in the plan? And how does dad not believing the dreams, but rebuking me for it fit in the plan? How does any of this possibly work together? I don't believe anybody in Genesis 37 goes, yeah, I know exactly how this is going to play out. This looks completely wrong. God gave Joseph a dream that he would rule. And there's nothing remotely looking like that in the slightest. It looks like Joseph's life is ruined. Absolutely ruined. But yet God had bigger plans. And I think this is a lot of our struggle. It is one of our greatest struggles to believe that God is able to work through sinful circumstances. And that God is able to work and accomplish his will even when people are actively resisting it. I hope you've been feeling the truth of this on Sunday morning, right? This is exactly what is happening where evil is at work and God is working through the sinful evil circumstances, through the chief priests and those religious leaders, through Judas, through all of those events. 
God is accomplishing his plan. He has something bigger at work. It doesn't look like it on the surface. If you're standing there as one of the disciples looking at the scene going down, you have to stand there and go, this isn't right. How how can this be right? He's been betrayed. He's been arrested and he's going off to his death. Something's gone wrong. And God's going, no, no. Our struggle is understanding that God is absolutely working through the sinful circumstances. And that God can absolutely accomplish his will, even if everybody's resisting it. You have 10 brothers resisting this revelation of God, this dream about Joseph. You know the story. Are they going to bow down to him one day? It doesn't look like it in chapter 37, does it? But God's going to work those things out. And I think this is so important for us to realize is that there is a picture for us to hold on to that in the time of our difficulty and struggle and pain and suffering and going through these sinful circumstances and where we look around and we go, this can't be right. God can't be here. Look at all the evil. Look at all the wickedness. Look at all that I'm experiencing. That doesn't mean that God is not at work and it doesn't mean that God does not have a bigger plan. The struggle is we can't see it and we seem to not be able to believe it because nothing looks right. And we're right. It doesn't look right. Nothing in chapter 37 looks right. If that's the end of the story, you go, well, that can't be right. (laughs) And you're right. It isn't right. And if you're standing there with the disciples looking at what's happening to Jesus, that can't be right. But God's at work. And I would also like to encourage us to think about how sometimes our efforts to do what is right, to stand up for God, to be righteous, is sometimes why we have a fractured family. Sometimes that can be the very reason why things blow to pieces is because we're trying to do the right thing. We're the ones that are trying to to do what God has said to do. And sometimes we can be afraid to do the right thing because we don't want the family to be a mess. We don't want the family to be fractured, but we still have to do what is right. And we still have to follow God and say the right things and do the right things and let the consequences be what they're going to be. And here's the hope in that is that even in a family of envy, jealousy and hatred, God can still be at work. God can still accomplish his purposes. So we don't back off and go, well, I don't want to mess this up. I like our Thanksgiving dinner. If truth needs to be said and we need to do what is right and say what is right, we've got to say what is right. And let God work through the circumstance. And let God accomplish his purpose in that. Now let me end with this. Don't miss how much Jesus understands this circumstance. These events are foreshadowing the life of Jesus. He's rejected by his own flesh and blood brothers. I've always tried to visualize that table. Can you believe that John's account tells us that his own physical flesh and blood brothers did not believe him? I have to think every dinner table, Mary is sitting there going, he was a miracle child. He was a miracle child. He was a miracle child. And they went, no, he wasn't. Imagine what that looked like every day. 
Mary's like, you've got to be kidding me. You think I made that up? I didn't make that up. He's a miracle child. And the brothers, it says, did not believe. Jesus was rejected by his own family. And not only was he rejected by his own family, John pushes it further. He was rejected by his own brethren. He was rejected by his own people. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. The similarity here, here he comes and they're saying, we don't want any part of it. In fact, why does Israel reject him? Because of the revelation of Jesus that he has the authority and you have to serve him. They did not like that. They hated that. Caiaphas even says that. He's going to take our power. He's going to take our rule and authority. It was the very revelation of God about who Jesus is that gets him killed by his own brethren. Just as much as you're seeing in this picture here. And just like you see the brothers handing Joseph over to the Midianite traders and let them deal with it. We see with Jesus, the Jews didn't have the courage to do it themselves, but hand him over to the Romans, hand him over to the Gentiles. They're going to be the ones to crucify. They're going to be the ones to do this. And even his own close companion sells him for pieces of silver, just as Joseph is sold for pieces of silver. It's a picture to remind us Jesus had a difficult life so that he can understand your difficult life. Jesus went through suffering. He had a fractured family. He understands rejection. He understands close companions turning their back on you. Jesus went seeking for his brothers and for their own well-being only to be rejected and sent away. And I want us to note that as we look in the life of Jesus, what do we know? God was working through the rejection. We know that. God was fully at work in his rejection every step of the way. We highlighted it this morning. Here are this whole denial scene goes down and Judas betrays and all those events happen. And it ends with the statement of that's what the prophet said we're going to happen. God was fully involved and fully aware and accomplishing his purposes through it. And so, friends, God works through brokenness to accomplish his purposes. This is a very broken scene of Jacob's family. This family's a mess, it's a total spiritual disaster. And yet God can be with you and God can be working through the fracture and God can still be accomplishing reconciliation and still accomplish a way to bring those people back to him. And I think it's important to remind ourselves as much as we might love our family members and have all of that brokenness, you know that God loves them more and is working to save their souls there's hope in fractured families and god can work through the brokenness let's go to god in prayer heavenly father lord we can we can be so lost in in the world right now when we when we go through times of darkness and pain and suffering and trials And it can be very hard for us to see that you are there 
it can be so difficult for us to understand what is happening. And we can struggle to believe that you can be working through such terrible circumstances that can happen to us. Such terrible, evil, wicked things that we experience. But Lord, I pray that you would give us an assurance. The assurance that we see that just as you could work through the life of Joseph and all of that brokenness to accomplish your will. And just as you worked through Jesus' life and all of the evil and wickedness that was done to him, you accomplished your will. That you can also work through our brokenness and work through all the sinful circumstances and accomplish your will. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be righteous and faithful to you in times of brokenness. Help us to be beacons of light to our families when they're fractured. Help us to say and do the right things that would reflect what you would want us to say, that we would certainly speak the truth, but that we would speak it in love, that our words would be seasoned with salt, that we would do it in such a way because we know that you want every lost sheep to return to you. So help us to say the words that need to be said, to say those words in righteousness and faithfulness and holiness, but to also say those words truly from the heart and truly from love. Lord, I pray that for any who have fractured families, who have gone through a hurt and gone through pain, that you would provide healing and that you would open all of our eyes to see how you work through sinful circumstances, that you work through difficulties, that you work through the trials, that you can work through the hardships and you can still accomplish great things, even in the lives of those who actively resist you. So Lord, we praise you for it. We're amazed by your power and how you always accomplish your will in this world. We thank you, Lord. We pray it through your son, Jesus. Amen. We'll sing the invitation song. We invite you to come to Jesus tonight and find the hope that is found in his son, who went through also brokenness and sinfulness and wickedness to be able to accomplish the will of God. We serve an amazing God who can do great things even through troubled times. Let God work in your life. Give your life to him tonight. Turn away from your sins. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins and follow him faithfully. And if you need to come back to the Lord, tonight's the night. Sometimes we can walk away from God because we struggle with understanding where is God in the pain? Where is God in the brokenness? And I hope tonight helps you see that God is right there, that God has not left you, but is walking with you through those hardships. Can we help you in any way? Won't you come now while we stand and while we sing?